Hi there, welcome to Bible Discovery, the weekend show where we discuss big questions brought up from reading through the Bible. And we also discuss your questions. I'm Corey. And I'm Matlock. And today our assigned reading because we work with Bible Discovery Ministries. So we're reading through the Bible this year. If you want more information on that, go to our website, which is BibleDiscoveryTV.com. But our assigned reading for this week was Genesis 48 to Exodus 21. So our big question today that we're going to be discussing later on in the show is, what does the Exodus tell us about God? I mean, why the Exodus? Why the 10 plagues of Egypt? These were very brutal. People died. So what does this tell us about God's character? Some of your questions that we're going to be looking in today is the Exodus history. Why did God try to kill Moses? Uh, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And do we as Christians have to observe the Sabbath? There's many more questions as well, but those are just some that I wanted to plug to you so that you'll stick around and, and discuss with us some of these issues brought up by the scripture. All right, Matlock, are you ready to jump into it? All right, let's do it. Let's jump in. <laughs> ready to jump in. That's okay, right. do you want to ask the first yeah, viewer sure. questions? I got a, I, it's a you got a few? question. Yeah, I got one. Okay. I got one. Okay, it's from JW. <laughs> All right. Regarding Genesis and Exodus, mm -hmm. is the Bible a history book? Ah. Yes. All right, so I think the obvious answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And also, no. That's what makes this question kind of interesting because I think the way we want to say is history in the way that we write history. Right. Right. Whereas opposed to how ancient man wrote history, very different. Yeah. They think very differently, right? They apply things very differently. Uh, their approach to the world, their worldview is all very different. So mm -hmm. anyways, so what do you think? Okay. So... Yes, it is not a history book in terms of, you know, if I were to go to, uh, if I were to buy a history book from, from a bookstore today, it's not history for history's sake. So the Bible is recording historical events. So in that case, it is a book that contains history. It's a history book in that sense. But it's not history just to record any old history. What we have in the books of the Bible, in Genesis and in Exodus, is history that's recorded for a specific purpose. And in our case, in the Bible's case, it's for a theological purpose. It's telling us something about God uh, and something about how God interacts with mankind. Overall, the Bible as a whole, I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, you can really think about the Bible uh, as delivering to us the redemption history of God. So Genesis sets up that problem for us. You know, in the first three chapters of Genesis, we get this problem where we have this paradise lost, right? We have how God, uh, what God wants for mankind to be in a good communion relationship with him without sin, without hindrance. And then what has happened, what humanity chose, which was not that we chose to, you know, be our own gods. And that didn't really work out for us very well. So is God just going to leave us to our own devices? Well, no, because then there wouldn't be a Bible. It wouldn't happen. You know, what the Bible is recording is God's plan to get us back to that ideal state of living with him and without hindrance and without sin. So the Bible does that by recording history that it claims tells us something about the character of God, the nature of God, and his plan right. of redemption. I think it's a good way of putting it because I know yeah. Church Father Basil the Great, I think, put it, called it the economy of Scripture. And essentially, you're dealing with 
theology, the study of God, knowing who God is and his character, mm -hmm. which is for the purpose of the edification of the soul, mm -hmm. which basically means it. that's the purpose why the book is being written. It's not just for, like you were saying, history for history's sake. Yeah. Let's document this so that we know moving forward, so that we can learn from it kind of thing, which is a good thing, but it's it's more than that. It's documenting God's relationship in the world, yeah. which history doesn't always do, right? Obviously, you, you have history books about Alexander the Great, these different things, just just pure human history. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important there because to keep in mind, because that's what helps us get to the, the purpose of why, you said the big question, right? God's character, that's what it's coming down to. It's mm -hmm. always bringing things back to God. Mm -hmm. Anyways, and I, and I yeah. think also thinking about the Bible in that term, in those terms, it helps explain why there are so many details that are not recorded in right. the Bible. There are so many things that I would like to know. I would like to know, for example, how old Cain and Abel were when that whole <laughs> that whole incident went down. The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, I would like to know more about Moses's family. The Bible doesn't give us all. There's a lot of details that it does that it leaves out for the sake of space and time, of course, but also because it's just giving us what we need to know to piece together this this redemption plan. Right. So, it, yeah, I think it, it pertains to that yes. kind of idea as well. I think that's good. Okay, let's move on. I got sure, Denise yeah. T. Okay. Okay, Denise. I do not understand why the circumcision requirement was not brought to their to their attention. That's Moses' family. Oh my goodness. So did Moses' mm -hmm. wife not realize when they were married or what's going on there? What's going on what's there? What's going on there? Denise, you've asked like the, the classical question that has befuddled Bible <laughs> readers, Bible students, and theologians since it was written. Right. Um, so what this is this is recorded in Exodus chapter four, and essentially what happens is Moses has has been you know he's he's in Midian, he's living his life, he's married to a Midianite woman, he has two sons. God calls him back to Egypt. So on his way back to Egypt, after Moses has accepted God's call, he goes back and there's this very weird moment where uh, you know scholars are even and and um, people who translate the Bible into English. They, it's hard for them to know how to translate this because it's written in such a way that is confusing. God appears and is trying to put to death someone, either Moses or his son. It's like, who is this? Who's, who's God trying to put to death? And Zipporah, Moses' wife, circumcises their son and touches the, the, the foreskin, the blood from, from that circumcision to Mos on Moses. And then God relents. What is that? It's, it's so confusing. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. Um, so uh, a classical understanding of this, which sounds like um, Denise has heard before, is that um, God was coming after Moses and his son because uh, Moses had not circumcised his son as an Israelite, and therefore this is this was result. This was resolving. Um, Moses' son being circumcised before Moses could come in and be the leader of Israel. But this is not really satisfactory for a few reasons, uh, or, or maybe I should say it still leaves a lot of unanswered questions, because in other areas of scripture where people are uncircumcised, God just tells them to become circumcised. He does not um, try, try to, to kill, kill them. them. <laughs> try to kill <laughs> yeah, them, right? And this, So right. this is pretty intense. He comes yeah. after Moses and tries to kill him uh, because of this. So, uh, but you know, a, a Jewish interpretation of this, which is pretty ancient, it's not like the most ancient, but uh, is that is that interpretation that, 
you know, God was coming after Moses because he was called to be the leader of Israel, but he wasn't even living like an Israelite and raising his own family like an Israelite because uh, his son was not circumcised. So this was a very serious uh, sin on Moses's part. Mm. And you know what? It's possible. Right. It just still leaves questions. There's another theory. <clears throat> you know, if you go on JSTOR, if you go on academia.edu or any of those websites that curate peer-reviewed uh, <laughs> academic articles, so many will pop up. Yeah. So many will pop up. And it's actually really fun to kind of read through them. But there is another theory that I think is very interesting where Moses is still, it ties it to Moses's blood guilt of killing the Egyptian. Right. Uh, and <clears throat> so remember that before Moses fled uh, to Midian, the reason he fled to Midian, the reason he ran away from Egypt is because he murdered an Egyptian. So it brings in this idea of blood guilt because it's not altogether out of God's character to attack someone who's in a leadership position. I mean, he wrestled Jacob right back in Genesis. Yes. Not to kill him, we're not told that it was to kill him, but he he wrestled Jacob at this moment where Jacob was going back into the promised land, this, this transitional moment mm -hmm. for Israel, for Jacob, um, where God even changed his name to Israel after that, right? So we know that it's in God's character to confront men who are going into leadership positions specifically on this timeline of his redemption history, okay? Right. Um, but possibly this might have to do with blood guilt because Zipporah says, surely you've become a bridegroom of blood to me. So she's linking Moses with this blood guilt potentially here. So what this might mean in this scholarly theory is that God had to deal with Moses's blood guilt because he had spilled the blood of an Egyptian unlawfully. He had murdered an Egyptian. Um, it, it's kind of in this legal gray area because it wasn't necessarily premeditated. He didn't go out that day to kill an Egyptian, but he did kind of look both ways before he struck the Egyptian and it ended up being a fatal blow. So did he try to murder the Egyptian? Was he just trying to beat the Egyptian off? It's kind of this gray area. But nevertheless, Moses was guilty of blood. And we see in the scripture, you know, blood being symbolized as crying out to God from the ground. When you go back to Genesis 4 and you look at Cain and Abel or later on in the law, in Mosaic law, you see cities of refuge where people who unintentionally murdered someone, unintentionally killed someone could run and flee to. But in order to ever leave that city, what would have to happen is the high pre the priest of that city would have to die or the high priest would have to die. And somehow that death of the high priest atoned for the the accidental murder and then the murderer would be set free and if someone was murdered and no one knew who the murderer was the people of the surrounding towns had to come together and offer a sacrifice of a heifer because blood needed to atone for blood guilt a life for a life blood for blood uh, so that's kind of the background of how israelites viewed dealing with spilt blood right. so moses then is appointed the leader of israel he's going back but he's still guilty of bloodshed so what's going to happen so in this theory god is trying to <coughs> kill Moses as an avenger of innocent blood. And Zipporah, kind of maybe not knowing what to do, 
improvises a blood sacrifice and circumcises their son, which would be why she touches the blood of the circumcision onto Moses. So it's like this atoning blood. Is it a perfect theory? No, but it is a very intriguing one because it wraps up very nicely for us mm. um, this idea of Moses being guilty of bloodshed. So it it fixes this problem right. as Moses goes into leadership. Also what's interesting about it is this idea that circumcision is related to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Because we, what you have is, like later on, Moses says, circumcise your heart. Yes. And then you have Paul say, <clears throat> be a living sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Right, you have this, and there's a relationship there between circumcising your heart and being a living sacrifice. Yes, there is. Um, so, and circumcision of the Hebrews was different. Like, the, okay, so a lot of people circumcised. Uh, uh, Egyptians, Egyptians circumcised. Right. A lot of the people in Canaan cir right. were circumcised. Some of the sea peoples that the Philistines came out of, yes. we know they were circumcised, uh, but it was a little bit different. So the Israelites circumcised as babies, whereas it appears that the wider world, it was um, a coming of age ritual, meaning that you were ready to be married. Right. Right. Um, but it's it's different. It, it is yes. different for the Hebrews. Yeah, that's and, children. Yeah, on the eighth day, right? Like, and and it's very personal. It was always covered up, so right. it wasn't assigned to the nations. It was assigned to them. Right. Between them and God. Very. Because neat. God judges the internal working. So it's another sign of like you're not living as a a, a person holy to God um, for everyone else to see. It yes. matters most what only you and God can that's see. That's right. It's invisible. You're in close. Right, it's very cool. All right, I have another question. Sure. Another question from Dora V. Mm -hmm. Okay, probably another question. I've not studied this, so this is a, totally up to you. Okay. I always wondered what happened with Moses' children. Yeah. Do you have any information? Okay, so I have some. I have some information. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not what will satisfy you completely, Dora. But I do have some information. Okay, so the Bible does tell us in Exodus 18 that uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, um, brought Zipporah and Moses' two sons, one the oldest, of course, being named Gershom, back to Moses. So this is really interesting. This gives us, like, this tantalizes us because, at least me, <laughs> because it uses the phrase, after Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. Normally when that phrase sent away is used, it refers to divorce in the Bible, which is very interesting. Did Moses try to divorce Zipporah? I, I don't know. We don't know. That's what I'm saying. The Bible doesn't give us all of the information that we want to know. But regardless, once the Israelites had been out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai, Jethro brings them back and Moses receives them back. So um, Zipporah and her two sons were sent away from Moses and then he receives them back. So, you know, they could have gone been lost completely to history in Midian, never to be heard from again, but they're brought back in, in um, Exodus chapter 18. And then, okay, so then uh, Judges chapter 18, the book of Judges is telling us very disturbing things about um, how Israel has fallen and how they have fallen so badly. And you can read Judges 18 on your own, but at the very end, we're told, we're given this we're given this story of how a Levitical, a Levite who should have been a priest and Moses was a Levite and Aaron was a Levite, uh, became the priest of the tribe of Dan, but he was a heretical priest. So he was a, so he was so-called a priest for God, but he 
was keeping all of these idols for the Israelites and specifically for the tribe of Dan. And it waits to the very end, the Bible waits to the very end of this story. And then it lets us know the identity of this Levitical priest. Uh, and his name was Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses. And his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. So the descendants of Moses' son Gershom became idolatrous priests for the entire history of northern Israel until the Assyrian invasion in 722 BC. Don't right. know what happened to the descendants of his youngest son, but that's what I got for you. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's good. All right. All right. Okay, I have I have a follow-up question. Oh, you do? To, okay. To, while we're talking about Moses' family and okay. Moses' kids, Anne asked this question to us. Why did Moses' father-in-law have more than one name? Now, this is a very astute question because a lot of people don't realize that he does. So when we first meet Moses's father-in-law. It's, of course, when Moses is running away from murdering that Egyptian. It's in Exodus chapter 2. And we're told that he, he meets the daughters of Reuel, and the priest of Midian. And he goes back, and then Reuel accepts Moses, and he invites him into his family by marrying him to his oldest daughter, Zipporah. So we're told that Moses' father-in-law's name is Reuel. But then, as we get into the Exodus, you'll notice that like, for example, in Exodus 18, he's called Jethro. Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, received Zipporah and his sons and then brought them back to Moses. He's regularly referred to as Jethro. And then when we get into Numbers 10, we have a new relative of Moses, Hobab, the son of Reuel, Moses' father-in-law. So which is it? Is it Reuel or is it Jethro? Now, there's two ways that you can justify this problem. One is that Raul had two names, Raul and Jethro, which is possible. But another way to look at this is the term father-in-law in Hebrew does not mean exactly father-in-law. It means relative, like, like related by marriage. So what it could be is that Raul was the father of Zipporah, because we see in Exodus 2, he married her to Moses, marry my oldest daughter. So Reuel seems to have been the actual father of Zipporah, so would be the father-in-law of Moses. If Reuel died, someone would need to, a son would need to step into his place as the patriarch of that family. So to take over those rules, that could have been Jethro could have been a son of Raul and would have had the same authority uh, to receive Zipporah back and come back and negotiate with Moses, Moses remarrying Zipporah or reconciling with Zipporah. Uh, so that's that's what it seems like. Mm. And then later we see Hobab, a son of Raul, being the next leader of that family. So either way, he either had two names, Jethro and Raul, or Raul was the actual father of Zipporah, and uh, his sons took his place as he died yeah. as the patriarch of that family. For it not being a history book, we got a lot of historical questions. Lots, I know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. those are my favorite. Yeah, those Love are good. Love it. Love it. <laughs> okay, so uh, I have a question from Linda D. Okay. Uh, and this is a really interesting one, and I know a lot of skeptics of the Bible and a lot of people who are just reading the Bible now 
really have questions about. So here it is, Linda, good question. It says, she says, okay, the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why did he do that if he wanted the Israelites freed? I don't get it. Right. I don't get it. So this is obviously referring to Exodus 7 through 11, the 10 plagues of Egypt, when um, Moses goes to Pharaoh and is like, let pe God's people go and Pharaoh's heart is so hard. The, the quick answer, there's a couple of things I think that are related to this, but the quick answer to that is uh, God says in Exodus 10, verse mm -hmm. 1, go to Pharaoh, he's speaking to Moses, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Right. So in other words, he actually wants these miracles to come about. Mm -hmm. So you ask yourself, okay, so God wants to show these miracles. Well, why would he want that? And then why would he harden his heart to do that? Why does he need to? What was interesting here is, is that when you kind of read the different parts of the Bible, which is what like harden your heart, like you read in Romans, or I think it's Romans with Paul, saying, I will have mercy on whom I, ha I will have mercy. I will harden on whom I harden. And then we read elsewhere in Hebrews 3, where it says, People's hearts are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Right. What you have here is that like God's not hardening people's hearts who are good. People who are who have hearts of flesh. Like Ezekiel talks about people having hearts of flesh. God's not hardening Moses' heart here. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. He's hardening people's hearts who are being deceitful within themselves. So what, the, what does you mean by that? What do you mean he's hardening them? Well, it sounds like God is actually allowing their hearts... Uh, is actually protecting their hearts from being so hardened that they can't respond to the gospel, they can't respond to his word, so that he removes some sort of protection and he allows deceit to take over mm -hmm. in some sense. In other words, God's proactively, God is proactively protecting. He's not proactively hardening. It is our sin's deceitfulness that hardens. Right. You see what I'm saying? Right. So, but, but by removing his protection, he's allowing the hardening to take place. Uh, but it is still people who are, being, who are sinners who are doing it. Now, People have a lot of problems with these because, you know, we, in today's discussion, it ends up being a free will versus determinism argument. What's going on there? And that's just not what ancient man's talking about at all. Mm. So it's like, that's not, Moses is not going to be like, oh, you know, you know, he's not worried about our modern concerns whatsoever. Um, but it's important to note here that when you look at it, that frame of, that, that reference point where God is just removing his protection and that it's sin's deceitfulness that's allowing it, you realize that Pharaoh himself thought he was a god or at least had the power of by the gods, instilled mm -hmm. by the power of the gods, to let the sun set and rise and these different things. So he was essentially idolatrous. He was an yeah. idol in himself, right? Which is a lie. Pride is a lie. I, I hearken that all the time. So here's incidences where we have God says, um, I will harden his heart in the future tense. And that's before Exodus 10, where he goes, I've hardened his heart. So in other words, he says twice in Exodus 4, verse 21, in Exodus 7, verse 3, I will harden his heart in the future tense. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't necessarily mean to imply that he's, you know, he's immediately done so. And then after that, we have something really interesting. Pharaoh hardens his own heart 10 times mm -hmm. with each plague, with each 10 plagues. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's so we're here what we have is God saying, I'm going to harden his heart. And the Pharaoh hardening his own heart based on a reaction to what God's doing. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily... God going, okay, well, you are a good guy, and now I'm just going to harden you, and you, know, you can't do anything about it. Not like that. Mm -hmm. I think we have this natural impulse to be like, oh, humans are inherently good. You can't look at it in no fr our modern frame of reference here. Mm -hmm. um, so long story short, uh, Pharaoh is hardening his, his own heart as a reaction too. And I think that that strongly testifies to what 
um, God is doing elsewhere. So we read in Ephesians, for instance, uh, Ephesians 4, verse 18 and 19. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. In other words, their hearts are hardened because of their own deceitfulness and, and their own sin. Right. And they're living in that. There's they don't no want to change. They don't want to change. There's repentance. Pharaoh wants to be an idol. Yeah. Pharaoh wants to be a god. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so to finish the, the verse, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Um, so that is the to answer the modern question of the free will and how does that work? Why would God harden Pharaoh's hearts? It's like, well, one is to show signs of like that of his power. Mm-hmm. Because remember, in that ancient context, they believed gods were real. It's not like today where there's mostly atheism about people believed that the gods were real. Mm-hmm. There was right, and you know, whether or not you thought they were angels or gods, lowercase g, it was inundated the supernatural was inundated in society. Yeah. So God himself is showing that he has power over those other gods, lowercase g gods, yeah. especially Pharaoh. Go ahead. Well, I think that it's really interesting that even just not knowing the cultural context of of the Egyptian view of hardness of heart and hardening heart, you still we still get to this place where it's like, no, it, it, this has to do with judgment, right. uh, whether it's in Ephesians or whether it's here in Exodus that people are hardening their own hearts by not wanting to change and therefore bringing judgment about anyway. Like, judge me the way that I am. This is the way that I am. Okay, so why I think that's interesting is because in an Egyptian and ancient Egyptian context, they they believed in the hardening of the heart. They believed that their hearts would be judged in the afterworld. Uh, And so what would happen is when a pharaoh would die, uh, the priests would mummify the body and they they would take out the internal organs but leave the heart in the body because the heart had to be weighed by the god of the underworld. And if if it wasn't light as light or lighter than a feather, the pharaoh would not be accepted into uh, you know this this good afterlife and would be would roam around uh, to be weighed again. And so what the priests would do is they would uh, do all of these incantations and purification rituals over the heart, and then they would tie a golden amulet. Uh, in the mummy's wrapping over his heart or her heart that would harden the heart. so make it unchangeable from that purified state. And in so doing, uh, the idea was that that heart was hard, it was hardened and unchangeable in a purified state to hopefully be light as a feather so that they could, or lighter than a feather, so that they could go into the after afterlife. So it's really interesting about that Egyptian context. The Israelites lived in Egypt. Yeah. They knew this. Like the people to whom Exodus was written knew this cultural context. Moses knew this cultural context. So by saying that Pharaoh was hardening his heart against God, he was essentially saying, judge me as I am. This is who I am. I am staying like this, refusing to budge, refusing to change, refusing to move. And then God hardening Pharaoh's heart at the end was like, okay, it's God being, it's God going, yes, you will enter into judgment, but it's not going to be the judgment of your God in the afterlife. It's going to be the judgment of me now, the true God. So this is all about judgment. It's not about God being unfair. This is not even about God releasing the Israelites at this moment. This is about God bringing judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt as the king of the world, as king even of Egypt, as God even 
of Egypt. So I think it's really interesting that whether you look at it from the context of Egypt itself yes. and the Israelites coming out of Egypt, who was the audience that this was written to originally, uh, or whether you have to deduce that through reading through the scriptures and, and going into the New Testament, it still becomes about judgment. So yes. this isn't God being unfair to Pharaoh. That's not what this is about. This is about God bringing judgment to a leader who wanted that judgment, who is refusing to change. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really good. And then those two are not mutually exclusive thoughts, mm -hmm. as you were saying. Like, God's, it's a really, it comes down to the moral judgment. Like, who's who's the arbiter of right and wrong here? Is it you or is it God? Right. And that's what it boils down to. Right. Either way. There's a lot of really interesting things going on uh, in the in the Exodus narrative, which we're going to discuss even more when we get into our big question. But, but before we get to our big question, we have another viewer question, actually two viewer questions, but I'm just going to read one of them because they're very similar. So Chris Q asked this question, but Tariq R also asked this question. So Tariq, I'm going to read um, their version of it, but they're essentially the same question. So uh, Tariq says, Exodus 20. All, are all Ten Commandments, including observing the Sabbath, moral laws for Christians under grace? Okay. So this has to do with, do we have to still obey the Ten Commandments? Do we have to, do Christians have to observe the Sabbath? All of these things. What do you think? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. First, we, have, we got, what is, the moral, what is moral law? What are the Ten Commandments supposed, what are they functioning as? And are, right, and how does that lead up to the Sabbath? But before I get into those things, let me just read Exodus 20, because I think that'll help sure. just so we can hear it, because that's what it's referring to. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Mm -hmm. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And, it, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who, or the foreigner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Okay, so that's the context. So specifically is do no work. Okay? Yeah. And that's really important here. But I think that um, what's really interesting about this question here is that when you think about what happens later in the New Testament with Jesus Christ, okay, and how that relates to this whole thing with the Sabbath. Because mm -hmm. Jesus, and this is important, Jesus specifically calls himself the Sabbath. He makes himself the rest in which the Sabbath can make any sense at all. Right. Um, so here, I'm going to... Uh, what's really... To keep this in mind, there's two things happening here. One, there's works of the law, and there's good works. And this is... When we talk about moral, moral law, when we're talking about things in that sense, we've got to think about good works. We think of works of the law... We're thinking about things that apply like Leviticus and those different things. Anyways, so in the New Testament, Jesus Christ specifically contrasts works of the law against good works. So I'm going to read you some things. Um, Matthew 12, verses 11 to 13. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So after that, he heals a man, right? So he does a good work on the Sabbath. So what's happening there is the, the Pharisees were like, you can't do anything, right? Because they essentially made resting a work, 
okay? So, which is ironic in a sense. So you can't do anything on the Sabbath. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> we got to follow the works of the law. And Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 there's good works also mm -hmm. that I'm allowed to do, irrespective mm -hmm. of the works of the law. Right. So there's a contrast that's already made there between good works and the works of the law. And it seems like the Sabbath is put as a works of the law, okay? If we make resting on the Sabbath a necessary, a necessary law to follow, to observe, we make resting into a work day, which is the opposite. Doesn't really make much sense. Okay. <laughs> sure. So, all right. So you can't. So the concept is you can't work your way to heaven. You're saved by grace through faith. Okay. Yeah. To set out to do good works, which we know is contrasted by the works of the law here. So, but the, what's really interesting here is that you don't honor God by resting and doing nothing and sleeping all day on on the Sabbath. You honor God by resting in Him, and that is attested to throughout the New Testament. In fact, Christ Himself calls himself the Sabbath right before the encounter, okay, mm -hmm. with in Matthew 12. So we read Matthew 11, verses 20 to 30. Let me read it. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, le and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Then it carries on to Matthew 12. And at that time, Jesus went through the great fields on the Sabbath. Right. It completely connects there. He's connecting rest and the right, Sabbath into himself. And we know that from other verses, like in Hebrews and the Psalms and in Acts, that God, having rest in God is what it means to have rest. We know that when they're going to the promised land, not all of them inherited it and found rest there because it was specifically rest in God, right? So I'll, I'll read you some things. Uh, so Acts 3 and uh, Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, okay? Uh, in Hebrews 4, like they all engage this concept of resting in God and uh, as opposed to just rest in itself. Right. So the long story of this is, is that no, the Sabbath is not a moral law. I would say that much. It does not yep. appear to be moral. It appears to be a work of the law because specifically it says in Exodus 20, it was a sign. Yes. Right. And what is that sign pointing to? To God. Mm-hmm. Right? So then when Christ comes as fulfillment of the works of the law, which is when he fulfilled the works of the law, we carry with us now the good works of the mm -hmm. law, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like the Sabbath is included in that. No, definitely not. Well, and I think, okay, so from our perspective, it is a mark of... I don't like using the word privilege in today's day and age because I think in the right. political conversation it has like really... But for lack of a better word... It is a mark of our privilege as a society that we can say, oh, that we can contemplate this question, oh, should we rest? We have the luxury of that. I mean, when you look at first century Christians, you go to Acts 15 and look at what this whole idea was, did, did early Christians have to also be Jewish? Did they have to follow the law of Moses? Did they have to be circumcised? Did they have to observe the Sabbath? What did they have to do? And in Acts chapter 15, the resounding answer was no. So you can look at the qualifications that the elders of the Jerusalem church were advocating for the Gentiles to follow, and the Sabbath is not in there. One of the main, like, I, I think a huge practical reason for this as well is because a, a lot of the early Christians were of the slave class. They were lesser uh, in the Roman Empire. They worked every day. They couldn't just take a religious holiday. They, they, they couldn't do and it. And be punished for, and for not doing exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And that did not, they were not required of God to do that. That was not their context. And so I think a lot of this comes from we have the luxury in our Western societies today 
we have the luxury of being like, oh, a lot of people have the weekend, Saturday or Sunday. Which day should we do it? Should we do it? And it becomes this weird idea that we have to work again. But also, <clears throat> I think like what you said in Exodus 20 where it talks about the, the Sabbath as a sign. What does that mean? When we look at the Sabbath as something like, do we have to do it or do we not do it? I think we lose so much of its original intended purpose. So Moses ties it back in, in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments and elsewhere where he talks about the Sabbath. He ties it back to God's creative order. So how God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. Now, who is Moses talking to? He's talking to the Israelites who were just a slave race. They had no days off. They worked for Pharaoh. Pharaoh was, for all intents and purposes, their master, their patriarch, their god. Okay? Like, like practically. I don't mean in, the, in their worship thoughts, but practically. He dictated what they could do, and their Egyptian masters dictated what they could do. So God takes, rescues Israel out of Egypt, where they never had any rest, and now he says, you will now be like me. You will rest. You will work for six days and you'll rest. You will be like right. me. So God is giving them this new identity, which is smattered all over Exodus. If you follow me, you will be my holy people, my priestly nation, right? So God is giving them this new identity, this new status where he is their king. He is their patriarch, their father. Uh, and so they will now live like he does. So it's this sign to them that they are God's people and that God has a plan of redemption for them. He has rescued them. He is not leaving them nor humanity according to the covenant that God made with Abraham, their forefather, that they would become a blessing to the rest of the world. So this is this next step in redemption history and salvation history which is why I think it's very cool where Christ in the New Testament then is seen as being this Sabbath rest for all of us. It's right. the next step and, in the plan of salvation. And to add to what you're saying, because it's really important, what, you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of the new covenant? Right? Well, it's to restore us to new creation, mm -hmm. to restore us to the, our identic condition and state. That is the plan. That's the mission, right? So when you think about that, then you ask, okay, well, was, was Adam bound of following the Sabbath? Well, no. No, it doesn't. And, and it does Christ not appear to Adam. me. Yeah. Does not appear to me. So if God is of Christ, right, is restoring us to that endemic way, to that Edenic state, uh, then you have to ask yourself is, okay, so then if that's what we're going back to, before the law even existed, before yeah. following the Sabbath, yeah. that is what Jesus Christ wants for us, to not become servants. Like if you think about that in, in further context, Adam falls, he becomes a servant to the ground. Yeah. It'll make thorns and yeah. thorns and thistles for him, or just to survive. And then after that point, uh, this, we too in the law are serving the following the Sabbath, like rigidly following. Mm -hmm. So God's slowly gearing up, like you're saying, building us up to something to restore us uh, to the way where we to what we ought to be, to what we should have been from the very beginning, right? right? In Eden. So you have this really beautiful thing there, and so that's before the Sabbath. And like you said, by following the Sabbath, like God did, we're actively perpetuating that image of God. So here what we have here, and here's what's really interesting about that. And to kind of tie all this together here about how we're not serving the land now, right? It's about pointing to God, right? And Christ is the Sabbath. We're going to read uh, Galatians 4. And I hope this really hits home with whether or not it's a moral law or not. Okay. Galatians 4, now to give context to, Paul is speaking to 
pagans, but he's also speaking to Judaizers, Judaizers specifically. Yeah, so there's false teachers infiltrating the church, teaching that Christians need to be Jewish, they need to be circumcised, they need to follow the law yes. of Moses in order to be Christian. So I'm going to read this now, Galatians 4, verses 1 to 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. And in a very, okay. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So in other words, before, when we were enslaved to the law, because Paul makes that connection that we were slaves to the law, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Okay. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that's the basis right there of salvation. So you are no longer a slave to the ground like Adam was after he fell to the law, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay. So now you have the adoption of sonship. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature who are not who are gods, who are not gods. Okay, sorry, excuse me. But now that you have come to know God, or rather been known by God, how can you turn uh, turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored in vain. I'm over you in vain. Let me repeat that last. That, Okay, so, um, but now that you have uh, come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you then turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world, the law, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. What is the Sabbath all about, mm -hmm. right? I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Paul is basically saying there, when you make observing the Sabbath such a, a must, like you have to do this to have some sort of justifying value in it, it's the same thing as getting circumcised. Because that's who he's dealing with. That's the same people he's dealing with. It's like you're getting circumcised, you're following the Sabbath, you're doing all these different things, just be a Jew. That's essentially what he's saying. Mm -hmm. So it's what's, I think that's a powerful testament to this whole thing about it, whether or not it's a moral law or not. It's not about your rest is in Christ, right? And that And that is... Furthermore, that's the reason why we celebrate on Sunday, through the Christ's resurrection, because that right. is... Right, why Christians traditionally celebrate on Sunday. That's exactly it's right. the first day of the week when Christ was raised and when God began his creative work. Exactly. And what's really interesting about that whole thing, that we're celebrating new creation in Christ, right? What's amazing about that is Christ died on a Friday, he rested on the Sabbath, and then rose on the Sunday, mm -hmm. right? He rested, and then that caps off the law. The law's done. He rested, and now we celebrate the new day. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's the point. It's new creation. It's not about old creation. It's about new creation. Yeah. And like neither one of us is saying that rest is a bad thing no. or that we shouldn't take a day of rest. Not what we're saying. No. But we're saying it is not required of us by God for our, sal for our salvation. That's in right. In any stretch of the imagination. That's right. Because Christ. It's, yeah. It's not a law. That's right. It's us. not a law. It's not a good work either. And that's what's important. Yeah. It's not a good work that James talks about living your life in good works, right? It's not a good work. It's not helping orphans and widows, right? He makes that contrast. Yeah. So that's really important. And let's not miss the forest for the trees. I, I'm just, I hate that when we get into some of these theological discussions, we 
tend to lose the original meaning of the Sabbath in the first place. Right. We tend to lose why God had established it in the first place. And that's what's important about it. Right. Why it was instituted and what it showed to Israel and what then we can see it as is being this progression in God's plan of salvation, which it was is very cool. A, it was a sign that you were made in the image of God, which is amazing. Yes. Right. You are his creation, his people, right. and he's going to redeem you. Right. He, or he has a plan of salvation for mankind. Okay, so with all of that being said, the viewer questions are dealt with now. So let's return to our big question, sure. Matlock. So let's discuss about this. What does the Exodus tell us about God? Uh, some kind of like follow-up things. Why? Why the plagues of Egypt? Does this portray the character of God as vengeful, as brutal, uh, as unmerciful. I mean, there's the killing of, of people in the 10 plagues of Egypt. So, right. so what do you think, what does the Exodus tell us about God and about his, his nature and his character? Well, I think it shows that he's a judge. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this before, like what is the image or what, is, what do we see about God in Genesis? It reveals that God is a father, that he's a king, right? That he's a creator. But yeah, and, and also with, with Pharaoh's hardening of his heart, with that Egyptian context, it's pure, it's definitely judgment. It's judged, that right. That God is the judge I think that is a heart. big factor when it comes to Exodus. Uh, and even you got this notes like, why was he, you know, why did they go to slaves? So we find out that the Amorites, God was waiting for 400 years for the Amorites to fulfill their, their sin. Their evil, their wickedness. Their evil and their wickedness. That's referring back to God speaking to Abraham in Genesis. Yes, thank yeah. you for clarifying that. And the point of that, and that once again, God is a judge over this process. So God is not just a judge over mankind, though. That's what's really important there. God is judge over the supernatural world also. Mm-hmm. Because that's what Pharaoh was attempting to be. Pharaoh right. was attempting to be a God. And also to whether or not, I know it's it's speculative, but I think it makes a lot of sense with the, with the plagues being reminiscent or at least pointing to um Egyptian the gods, different deities, the different in, deities Egypt. in Egypt. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of sense there, even though it's an incomplete historical uh, argument. Yeah. Uh, I think that bringing some... judgment on each one of those those uh, avenues, showing his power over those. Exactly, right. God showing that he has power over the gods, um, and over nature, and over nature, so, and over humanity. Right. So yeah, yeah. So and so judge is a big one. Um, what do you think? Do you think there's another one? I know there's another one. It's I do. So I think, so I, I agree with you and that this, this portrays God as the ultimate judge and the ultimate moral authority. I think it also from, from the flip side of it, then looking at it from the Israelite side, it shows God as the ultimate patriarch of Israel, their ultimate king, their ultimate redeemer. It was God who redeemed them and saved them. He brings them into the wilderness, gives them um, a law that that is clearly saying to them, you are now my people. I have, re- I have redeemed you now, but I am going to redeem you fully in the future. Uh, you know, it's not going to be until Deuteronomy chapter 31, but Moses is going to say to the people very clearly on his way out of leadership that one day God is going to circumcise their hearts. It's going to be an internal spiritual work. And then the later prophets of Israel would talk about, you know, how this is going to come in the form of a new covenant and the Messiah, the suffering servant who's going to come. So it all ties together. So God, yes, he is judge in in the Exodus. We see that. But on the flip side, he is also redeemer. He brings judgment 
and he brings salvation. He judges human evil and he also redeems fallen humanity. So it's this really cool, I think more holistic image of God when we pay attention to what's going on in the narrative, uh, the, the whole narrative, we see this more holistic image of God. Yes, who brings judgment, but also who is the, who Deliver. brings deliverance and salvation to fallen sinful humanity. Right. Yeah, they for those say, who will listen to him, for those who will cry out to him as he cries out to them. Yeah, judge and deliver. I think those are the two strongest. Yeah. Yes. Right, right there in Exodus. Right. Very cool. Very so cool. So I think it, it does take, you know, a lot of these, especially these Old Testament passages, take a lot of work for us. We have to sit with them. We have to meditate on what's going on and really kind of break down and, and add some cultural knowledge to really figure out what's going on. That's why the scripture tells us to meditate on it. Meditate right. on it, on the law of God, on the ways of God, uh, because there's a lot to, to learn about who God is through this. Right. It doesn't do us any favors if we just quickly read through it. No, I agree with you. So yeah. All right. All right. Do you have anything else to add? No, I think that's it for now. All I'm right. Sure some other questions will come up eventually. I'm sure they time. will. I'm sure they will. For this week, uh, we're going to be out. Make sure to check out the 10 minute recap if you haven't already. And again, if you want to get a hold of your Bible guide or your discovery guide, which is the print companion to Bible discovery, it contains um, uh, daily readings, daily Bible studies, taking you through the assigned reading to get you through the Bible this year. Check out BibleDiscoveryTV.com for that. Until next time, happy studying and happy reading. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.